Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Plays the Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by Heidi White. Heidi, welcome back to the Plays the Thing. Have you been on the Plays the Thing yet? This is my first time on the Plays the Thing and I'm so excited. Can't so, wait to get started. So I guess not welcome back. But, right. I mean, it's only right. the third the third play we've done on, on the Plays the Thing. That's right. So, so far you have listened to um, Matt Bianco and... Wait, who did King Lear? Tim and Matt. That's right. Tim and Matt mm-hmm. Bianco did King Lear. And then Angelina and Andrew Kern did Much You Do About Nothing. And now Heidi and I are going to discuss Henry V, the, uh, the history play. So we are on kind of a Shakespeare cycle here on the show. So we're going to do a drama or a tragedy, I guess is the, the more appropriate word. Uh, and then a comedy and then a history. And that's going to be our cycle. So we're going to complete the first Shakespearean, the plays, the thing cycle with Henry V. Heidi, one of the things I'm curious about from you is your taste for um, the history plays. Mm -hmm. Because I think when people think, you know, for most people, when they think of the plays they really, really love, it's going to be the Much You Do About Nothings or the Hamlets or Macbeth, where there's these big tragic scenarios with some wild plot twists or um, extreme characters or, you know, lots of... uh, um, stabbing in the back and uh, or or the comedies right with the one-liners and the romantic uh you know repart i don't know what's the what's the word i'm thinking of romantic repartee yeah that, but, but yeah, yeah i guess rapport, yeah, yes yeah. And, but also yeah. just just the chaos i guess is what i'm thinking. yes so yeah. both the tragedies and the comedies are kind of about chaos that gets unraveled. And so they're very, in a sense, sort of appealing, right? They're, they're, it's easy to understand why we sort of gravitate towards them. The histories, except in certain instances on stage or film, I feel like often tend to get forgotten. And in fact, many times when they're taught, they're often taught like in a history course as opposed to mm-hmm. a literature course. So what is your take? What is your um, view or your taste for... Uh, Shakespeare's history plays. 
Well, you've come to the right place. I <laughs> love the history plays. They are by far my favorite of Shakespeare's mm. plays. And I thought, I am, yes. why by far though? Well, that's a great question. I love Shakespeare. I've got lots and lots to say about Shakespeare. And I love teaching it. I love reading it. I love reading Shakespeare commentaries. Little known fact about just a quirkiness of Heidi White. Uh, so, um, but the history plays are my favorite. They do have a reputation uh, for being dry and they are dry if you're sitting and reading in an armchair. I'm, ne- I'm kind of never really a proponent of just sitting in an armchair at eight o'clock at night after a day at work, trying to read, to read Shakespeare like a book because- or really anything. Probably. Yes, right. Shakespeare should be performed. Uh, and- but so, so in other words, read it, yes. in, you know, read it standing. Is that what you're saying? Like read it <laughs> or in the mirror, um, <laughs> yes. walk around, listen to it, watch the, there's some stand in fan- front of the fireplace yes. and one, yes. stand on one side of it when one person's speaking and then move to the other side when the other person, well, and a one I man mean, show. Yes. And hardly ever are movies better than books, but, and but I have to say this very carefully because I'm not saying that Shakespeare <laughs> films, you should do that instead. But to see a history play performed is almost 100%. I can't think of an exception in which it is better to read it or you're going to get the ethos of the play by reading it rather than seeing it because the history plays are so full of intrigue, political intrigue, strategy, this kind of silent behind the scene movements, uh, this they're haunted by people grasping for power. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these moral ambiguities uh, in the history plays that, I mean, Shakespeare in general is particularly in the tragedies and the history plays is just full of moral ambiguity. Uh, but the history plays more than anything. And this play, the Henry plays, have that in spades. Mm. What does it mean to be a great man? And can a great man be a good man? Mm. And and that a lot of that comes up here in, in Act One, what we're going to talk about today. Yes. Um. The, you know, it's it's certainly under the surface, and at certain times, it's literally said right out loud. Basically, the, what you're saying right there. Mm-hmm. So, and, and we'll look at that. We'll look at a few passages soon. Let's let's take a step back and talk about Henry the Fifth in context. I think you know I, I wouldn't necessarily do this for a comedy or a tragedy as much, but I think these histories are are well served, um, especially well especially for a conversation like this. They're well served to sort of place them in their context. So um, Henry V, what, which, which edition do you have, by the way? Oh, I have several. The one I have in front of me right now is the little Macmillan Henry okay. V. That's just the play. So the- I'm using um, the Pelican Shakespeare. They have some uh-huh. new editions with really nice covers, which I posted on the, um, the Close Reads podcast Instagram page. So I'll just plug that real quick. Head over to Instagram and you can follow us there and you can see the cover of the book that I'm using. Um, but in it, it has a little introduction, which I think um, the first few paragraphs are, are, or the first paragraph or so is worth reading for some context, or at least highlighting a few things. And they mentioned that Henry V is the capstone and the keystone of Shakespeare's engagement with the English history play, which I think is an interesting sentence worth keeping in mind as, mm-hmm. we, sort of re, as we sort of discuss this play for the next uh, five weeks or so. And it mentions that it was first printed as a quarto in 1600. It is the ninth and final plan English history that he wrote in the 1590s. So it's as he's kind of, he's in his prime there, mm-hmm. I, I would say. Would you say that that's fair? That like it's kind of the prime, uh, the prime range of Shakespeare's writing years? Absolutely. Yes. His main masterpieces, his high masterpieces, high comedies, the great tragedies 
are, are, are written during this period. So, and, and then it also mentions like just for context within his other plays and you, and you're talking about how there's, I think you kind of talked about how some of these, these plays are very related to each other. There's a lot of sequencing going on, but this play, it says closes the second tetralogy of history plays. And that is, uh, began with Richard the second, um, and then Henry the fourth and then Henry the fifth was the third part and Richard or Henry the fourth has multiple part, parts. I believe I think it's got two parts to it. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yep. Two parts. Um, and the first tetralogy, if, if you're interested, were um, the first, second, and third of Henry the Sixth, and then Richard the Third. So, mm-hmm. um, some of the way they're titled is can be a little confusing when you're looking in in in, in introduction or just in a table of contents of one of the like massive books of collections because some people title them a little bit differently. Um, but then it says that narratively and in historical chronology, Henry V occupies the midpoint and offers a pause in the 15th century civil conflicts inaugurated by the overthrow in 1399 of Richard II by Henry IV and concluded by the defeat in 1485 of Richard III by Henry Tudor. Henry V thus portrays a high and perhaps unique moment in English national history when it represents a country both internally unified and, interna- and internationally victorious, one that has briefly exchanged civil unrest for foreign triumph. Henry was a king of legendary repute, and his story would have been available to Shakespeare not only in the chronicle histories of Hall and Hollandshed, but also in the anonymous play, The Famous Victories of Henry V, which was registered for publication in 1594 and printed in 1598. So, end quote. So we're in this time in Elizabethan history where, you know, there's this, this sense of English national pride and this que- these questions about what a monarchy is. I think that's a key thing to keep in mind, and I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. But this idea that it's the capstone and the keystone of Shakespeare's engagement with the English history play is really fascinating. What do you, what do you think they mean by the fact that it's the capstone and the keystone? Do you have, do you have thoughts on that? Oh, I got lots of thoughts on that. Yes. I thought you might. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, what's often called the second Henriad, which actually Shakespeare wrote this Henriad first, this tetralogy or, or group of four plays, starting with Richard II, then Henry IV one, Henry IV two, and Henry V. So each of the plays and are, are standalone plays. So you can watch one, enter into it, has its own motifs, its own themes, its own characters. Uh, each of them can stand alone, but they are better understood in context. So when I, when I teach these, I always start with Richard II and just go through. But you can pull any of them out. And actually, Henry IV one is one of Shakespeare's, universally acknowledged as one of his greatest plays. Maybe his greatest play ever, but definitely of the histories. So lots of people just read that one. And then, um, but Henry V, I think it's called the capstone because... It is one reason is because uh, is in the context of Shakespeare society in Elizabethan times, Henry V was, I mean, just practically deified. The patriotism around this man is a representative of England and victory and English culture and uh, just the greatness of this land. Henry V was kind of our version of George Washington right? Just arouses patriotic feelings hearing his name. So part of that capstone idea is that, and it is a uh, unification and a resolution of all of the themes of the three previous plays, beginning with Richard II, who was deposed, 
Uh, and the whole play of Richard II is about the toppling from power of this king who was popular and then gradually loses his popularity amongst his people. He turns, uh, he, he becomes greedy. He steals from his own nobles. He taxes his people just for his own wealth. And he ends up deposed. All the way over then to Henry V, uh, in which this man is becomes, as they call him in the play, the mirror of all Christian kings. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the kind of the resolution, all of these threads lead to Henry V. Now, of course, it's Shakespeare. So there's a lot of subversive elements in here. Nobody really knows what exactly Shakespeare thought about Henry V, whether or not he's being ironic or really is as patriotic as his countrymen. That's I'm sure you and I are going to talk about that a lot as we go through this play. Mm-hmm. But all of the in terms of the capstone idea, all of these threads kind of lead into this play. Mm. Let's dive into the into the chorus at the beginning mm. because I think that it gives us a lot of insight into what you're saying, um, and then it and it begins to preview some of the things that we're going to get throughout the play, which is obviously what it's intended to do. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> why don't you go ahead and uh, read the prologue for us? So this is kind of before the whole prologue. The, yeah, mm-hmm. let's read the whole yeah. thing. Okay. All right. Over a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels, leashed in like hounds, should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But pardon, and gentles all, the flat, unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt? Oh, pardon, since a crooked figure may attest in little place a million. And let us ciphers to this great account on your imaginary forces work. Suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined two mighty monarchies whose high upreared and abuting fronts the perilous and narrow ocean parts asunder. Piece out our imperfections with your thoughts into a thousand parts divide on man and make imaginary puissance. Think when we talk of horses that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth, for tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Carry them here and there, jumping more times, turning the accomplishment of many years into an hourglass. For the which supply, admit me chorus to this history, who prologue like your humble patience pray, gently to hear, kindly to judge our play. So there's a lot going on in this and we're yes. going to want to spend a good amount of time <laughs> on it. So, but, but here's my first yes. question. This is not something that Shakespeare does for all his plays. Why do you think that this particular play, he opens with a prologue and here's our chorus, I guess. And here's a chorus delivering a prologue. <laughs> so um, here's why I ask, because this prologue lays out the conflict. It, mm-hmm. He doesn't, lay the conflict out in the narrative for us. You know, we're dropped kind of in media race, right? I mean, he tells us, you've got these two monarchies 
facing each other across the ocean. That's what that's what the central conflict is. It's, it's this question of who's going. You know, there's going to be a war. I mean, he mm-hmm. tells us right away that the, that that this is a book about or a play about Henry, and that he is warlike. Right? It um, it calls him warlike Harry, like himself. And then it says these like the. I think this this little these three lines here that I'm about to read sometimes get glossed over, but they're sort of dark. So then should the warlike Harry like himself assume the port of Mars mm-hmm. and his heels leashed in like hounds should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. But part and gentles all is an interesting kind of conclusion to that line. Mm-hmm. But there's something dark about that, right? Like he's saying behind the trail of uh, the king are all these terrible things that war kind of brings forth, right? Right. And so he's laying all this out for us. Um, he doesn't, it's like I said, it's not part of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he does that in this particular play? Because even in other history, it's not like there's a chorus that's laying this all out for us. Right. It's a good question. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of scholarly debate about that very question. What is the purpose of the chorus in Henry V? The other history plays don't have them in the Henryad. So... Uh, I think that there's a couple of practical reasons for this in terms of being a playwright. You know, this this play requires a bit of setup. The last two plays, Henry Four, One and Two, have um, kind of given us. He's called Prince Hal in those plays. Yeah, he's yeah. not the king yet. So they've given us this background on this this king who had this wild youth and, and, and the focus of those plays are all on the intrigue within England. You're, nobody's fighting a foreign power or if they are, it's off stage and not a main part of the action. It's tangential to the action of the play. But in this play, it's central to the, it is the action of the play. As you pointed out, the two monarchies facing each other across the ocean. So this play actually does require a bit of historical background that needs to be presented to the audience so I think that's part of it. Another part of it is is the hearkening back to the Greek tragedies. Uh, there's a lot of of Greek allusions. Uh, even the what the lines you read, uh, assume the port of Mars, um, and at his heels, Lucian like hound should famine sword and fire crouch for employment. That that kind of personification is very typical of Greek war histories. Uh, so I think some of it is is that just as a literary device. And then a lot of it, I would argue, and this is controversial and you and I can talk (laughs) about this, but I, a lot of it, I think is to set is to appeal to the political sensibilities uh, of, of his audience to get them roused up and, um, and patriotism and then to present the character of Henry as a morally ambiguous character. Mm-hmm. So it, it provides a foil of like, I know everybody's going to think Henry is just, everybody has these wonderful positive views of him. He is the George Washington. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, was, I, I was literally just going to say, it'd yes. be like if we took like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington and it was just made a hagiography about him. Exactly. And lots of people think that's what Shakespeare is doing is, is basically doing hagiography with Henry V. And that's totally possible. You can read the play like that from start to finish, but I think there's a little bit more subversive. So I think in some ways he's naming the political uh, climate of the time through the chorus Mm. which doesn't necessarily mean Shakespeare as a man agrees with it or intends for his audience to, but he needs some kind of character to present that mm. well, to I, the audience. Right. Yeah. 
I do think that I think there's two things in there that I that I want to respond to. I think that I think that you're right that he's trying to to drum up a sort of sense of patriotism. And I think that what in, cer- in certain instances the way it's been performed, you see that that kind of um leaned on a little bit more. So in the Kenneth Branagh version, which is probably one of the great Shakespeare filmic adaptations, so I think from what 91. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. It's excellent. Okay, yeah. So in that one, you know, Derek Jacoby, I believe, plays the chorus, and he, and he's very sort of there's a seriousness, there's a very theatricalness, right? And at the end, he he kind of gets he, he's definitely trying to rouse, you know, sort of the, that sort of sense of patriotism, and then at the end, he like throws the doors open. So you mm-hmm. see that played out. You know, you see him trying to drum up that sort of enthusiasm. Um, and then in other cases, it's maybe not quite interpreted quite that way. Right. But but I do think he is he's trying to he's trying to drum that up because then in that the first scene of the play, he kind of brings you back down again. Mm-hmm. And I think he leans. I think that Shakespeare definitely leans into the complicated, the ambiguous nature of Henry right away. There, mm-hmm. he could have began with the scene like I don't really know that we needed all of that that other the stuff between the two bishops like i was thinking about that like is that a like do we actually need all of their conversation to still get what's going on in the play and i think he could have probably begun he could have either incorporated it into the chorus a little bit or begun with scene two when the messenger comes to henry and his court hmm. and they have the conversation because they have a whole conversation about what they're going to do right right and so I, did they need to have these two, did he need to have these two bishops discussing it and discussing, you know, Henry, except, except that I think he has that there because the first thing he wants to let, get us to understand is the complicated nature of the king himself. Mm-hmm. The fact that in some ways he has been able to put on masks, you know, that's something Angelina likes to, to point out a lot that you'll mm-hmm. see in Shakespeare a lot. You see this concept of, of masks. And when he was younger, the stuff that's in the Henry the fourth place, when he's with Falstaff and all that, he's acting one way, but then these bishops are saying, well, maybe he was, he was acting that way, but in reality, he was truly preparing himself to be king. He, he knew what was coming. Um, and, and so it does create that sense of it. Who is this guy act, actually? And for Shakespeare, you know, as the introduction says, this, Henry V was, was famous. He was, the, as you put it, the George Washington. So coming into the play, everybody who's reading this play already knows what happened. Mm-hmm. It's like if we watch a movie about the Revolutionary War, we know that we won and we kicked them back over the ocean, right? Right. Every English person in 1599 or whatever knows that Henry and his people, his soldiers, went over, defeated the French at Agincourt, which is implied in the, you know, the mm-hmm. chorus basically says that. You know what happened at Agincourt. And then they came back and he reigned and he became the hero that we think of him now. Right. Um, and so... It, he he's Shakespeare's definitely holding on to this the sense of of how complicated his character is, which of course you have to do if you're going to write a good narrative. Otherwise, uh, pure hagiography is a little boring after a while. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, in Shakespeare, I don't. I just don't think he's capable. I, I that's not in him. <laughs> There's he he's going to write a great play. So in order to write a great play, there has to be some kind of ambiguity in there, and uh, I mean it's all all concentrated in the character of Henry and nobody agrees on that. We all interpret Henry through our own 
lenses and our own desire for him to be what we want him to be. Hmm. I think the readers, I am looking forward to some lively debate on the Facebook group because I, I mean, I do that. I read Henry V and I mean, I'm like trained in literary scholarship and I see what I want to see. <laughs> yeah. So there's something about him. Shakespeare just wrote him so brilliantly. Um, the other thing going on in this course that I think for some, you know, for is worthy is worth pointing out is, you know, the apology for the failure of the play. This is what a lot of times these choruses do in Shakespeare and Elizabethan drama, right? It's the, the character comes out and apologizes to the audience for the failure to live up to their expectations. It's like a preemptive apology, right? I'm really sorry. Our play is so terrible. Like I know you're gonna have a bad time, but just be patient and bear with us. Um, and uh, does that in Romeo and Juliet, much ado about nothing. There are several plays that have that. And, and Henry is one of them. Uh, and one thing that I, I like about this little prologue is how clear when he talks about the, the cockpit, it's in the middle, um, on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Mm. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? So there's going to be a battle in this play and, uh, a battle that is a defining moment in English history. Yeah. And they're going to have to do it on a tiny stage in the middle of the day with no sets, no costumes, no lights, right? So no real with, horses. <laughs> yes. Uh, this, this thing that has captured the imagination of this entire nation, everybody knows this story. And so there's, again, there is something that's very worthwhile for someone to come out and say, I know we cannot meet your expectations on this. Um, what is he called? The, the wooden O. Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that did affright the air at Agincourt. So uh, there's, there is a performance issue being managed and handled and resolved in this chorus as well. Hmm. And also it's a little self-deprecating. So it's kind mm -hmm. of prob probably a little endearing. Yep. It gets everyone on their side, right? So then we get immediately, you know, into some political intrigue. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I think that, I mean, you mentioned this earlier when you were talking about why you like the history plays, but I think sometimes they, people think they're a little stuffy, but really they're basically like a good house version of house of cards, right? Exactly. Like they're actually, that's exactly what they are. What's mm -hmm. going on. What, like the machinations of politics going on, you know, under the, uh, on you know behind the scenes behind this behind the stage under uh, uh, the, the the little uh, legs under the dock right <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly which is kind of a weird thing to think you know being a metaphor <laughs> for politics but so and, and and the interesting thing is that we get we get clergymen we get this political intrigue introduced through the clergy uh which is interesting to say the least <laughs> to, to use my word <laughs> <laughs> It's an ambiguous <laughs> word, so it fits with the history plays. Exactly. I can use it however I want. Um, and, and in that way, you know, it's clear that, that, that Shakespeare is uh, settling the intrigue of his play into the church. That the church at least is deeply involved in it and is encouraging uh, Henry's actions. So one of the things that I was thinking about while I was rereading Act one is to what extent do we think that Henry is, how much agency does Henry have over the decisions that he makes? Hmm. Um, do you, does he read in act one so far um, 
like a like a truly sort of um not always omnipotent but a truly powerful king who's truly making the decisions for himself or does he read sort of like a young king who's got all these people who are telling him what to do and making the decisions i'm not 100 percent sure that that's that that's totally clear but i i think you could read it either way what do you think about that uh from what we can see here in act one scene one <laughs> Or act one, you know, there's only right. the, whole, the whole act is fine. Sure. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. All two of the scenes. All two of the scenes. They're doozies, though. That second one's a doozy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the most famous scenes in any history play of Shakespeare's is the, the act tennis one, balls. Scene two and the tennis yeah. balls and his response to the tennis balls. I think what's happening in act one is in some ways, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of, is it, I don't even know how to say that. There's so many words I was realizing as I was getting ready for this podcast that I don't know how to pronounce in real life because I've only ever read them. Is it, <laughs> Eli, is it Eli or I don't know how to say that, but the Bishop, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of something are having a conversation about whether or not they're going to be able to persuade Henry to vote or to, to quash a bill that they want quash that's going to take money and power from the church. And so they ag- come up with this scheme to kind of distract him and get him off to war. So I think what they're asking the very question you did in this scene, which is, can we mold the king? You know, they talk a lot about how great the king is and how he had this wild youth and, and now he's, you know, they, I mean, it's, it's, the language they use about him is either, as you pointed out, is hagiographic, right? They're you, you know, mm-hmm. making him just seem perfect, or mm-hmm. else they're kind of testing each other out with it. Hey, what do you think about the king? Right? These are political machinations that are happening in this scene. They're trying to figure out if they can bribe the king to get to keep money and power within the church. Um, so when I say that there's a lot of moral ambiguity, that is not actually very morally am- ambiguous, offering bribes to a king to keep money within the church. That's not ambiguous. That's just wrong. What happens in this play is that almost all of the side characters, their motives are very clear. Hmm. It's Henry. Hmm. That's the question mark. Has it, is it, as we, as we get to scene two, is it that Henry was playing them to get what he wanted to go to war the whole time? when they thought they're playing him, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. or is Henry, as he claims, you know, the very mirror of a Christian king? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I love is that, that that kind of feeds into that is that it's the bishops who, as I mentioned a minute ago, revealed to us that despite his wildness of his youth, the moment his father died, everything changed. Yes. And it's the bishops who point that out to us. It's not told through the core. I mean, it's it's he, if it's true that he was sort of, manipulating the situation and tricking them then he he played it right because they're like it's got it must be a miracle mm-hmm. um how does he say it um i think they even say that miracles don't happen anymore don't they um oh, i can't find it off the top of my head yeah right now, but... never was such a sudden scholar made i love that line yeah, yeah, that's yeah. such a great line <laughs> which and, and of course the implication there is that it wasn't sudden at all because right. scholars aren't made overnight um and so he he has a certain degree of control over over the way that he allows people to perceive him 
which of course changes the way you read the early Henry plays. So whenever we get around to those, but um, it, it does, it, it, that does seem to imply, as I'm saying that, that, he, that he, he at least has a degree of control over the kind of masks that he's wearing and the way people think about him. And thus he's a, a much more able to control the room than, you know, people think, I think even in scene two, we see that, right? Like he allows the, uh, the French prince, not the fresh prince, the French prince <laughs> to, um, to think he's weak, right? Like that's yes. like he's, and then, and then he comes out very strong mm-hmm. and, and very certain of himself. And you, you know, you could, you could probably perform that where he is young and is sort of discovering himself in that moment. Or you could play it where he's, that's, he's been preparing for that. Like he's mm-hmm. been waiting for the moment when he can stand up and he can prove not only what he is as a leader, but also, um, prove the control that he has. Right. And I think that's one of the tensions we get in him too, is the sense of him proving himself as a leader, but also him seeking power for himself. Right. And so that, you know, that's even one of those uh, ambiguities that sort of runs through all patriotism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is what we're doing in defense of our country about, actually, is it actually just about attaining power for, our, for ourselves? Are we really right. just being, is, 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 is the, ultimate patriotism really just a sense of sort of imperialism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's a good question. And it's a different question in every generation. So at the time of, uh, of, of Henry during Henry's time, that was a very relevant, you know, we read this long speech that is given by the, by the archbishop, you know, when, uh, Henry says to him, yeah, he's where he like basically lays out the history of why he deserves, why the, yes. why the whole, uh, law is dumb. Right. May I with right and conscience make this claim? Mm-hmm. Can I, am I the true King of France? Should I go over and invade? That's the big question. Should I go and invade France and make myself the King of France? Because I have this long ago, generation ago claim on the throne, which to modern ears, sounds ridiculous. It's been three generations at this point and your own father was a usurper. (laughs) So for this, this question seems ridiculous. Like in our minds, the only explanation for this is, is, is grasping, conniving and manipulative and power hungry. Technicality. Yes, that's exactly right. We would call it now. Right. So it must be some kind, you know, they want some kind of trade route or they want power, whatever it is. Now at the time of Henry's reign, this was not, this was a question of virtue. If I should be the king, I should be the king. Is given to me by God. I should claim it. And we're going to see this later on. Yes. Into the scene where he prays before Agincourt. So in reading, I do think it's really important for modern readers to try to enter into this historical understanding uh, and not just dismiss it out of hand with our modern sensibilities. This is a real question for their time. And it was a very real question in Shakespeare's time as well, because guess what is happening? Queen Elizabeth is getting old Mm -hmm. and she has no children. So this is, this is tapping into some very real anxiety, national anxiety on the part of his audience of what is going to happen. Who, who has the claim to the throne? What is right? Can I with right and conscience make this claim is a really important question for everybody in England at this time. Hmm. So 
this matters. And so modern readers tend to read this scene and dismiss him out of hand. He's got to be just power hungry. But there really is a question of wisdom and virtue embedded within this. Now, you can still read him as conniving and power hungry, but do it within the historical context of it. Mm. And I think we think of things like that, I don't know, somewhat differently yeah. <laughs> than even Elizabethan England would have, let alone 16th century or um, uh, Henry's time, which was what, the 1300s? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so 14th yep. century. Um, the sense of the degree to which power is sort of innately negative this to something today that you know when we talk about right. it like the the only response to that is that it's just negative it gets corrupt you know the power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely um it's not that that's not true per se but we also just think about it in a very different way and i think particularly in america where we are not particularly fond of the concept of hierarchy <laughs> right um but but Henry kind of comes across you know before he the before that before Canterbury's long and very boring speech uh-huh. we get um we we get him talking about how he says take heed how you impawn our person how you mm. awake our sleeping sword of war um, which that calls to mind chess right yes um, and how you impawn our person he's like take heed like as if he's saying I know what you're thinking yep. I know that you that you bishop want to make me do what you want me to do. You want me, you want to pick me up and move me where you want me to go. You mm-hmm. want to manipulate and control this situation. He says, take heed how you do that. But then he says, but then it's, it's, it seems like this warning, right? But then he says, we charge you in the name of God, take heed for never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood. Whose guiltless drops are every one a woe. A sore complaint against him whose wrongs give gives edge unto the swords that make such waste in brief mortality. So he he kind of it's almost like he's saying, "Careful what you're doing there, Bishop." And then he's saying, "And also be careful because whatever we decide here is going to mean a lot of people die." Basically, mm-hmm. so who's blo- who's 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 responsible for the spilling of the blood? Right. That becomes the right away. That becomes the big question: Is it Henry? Is it the bishops? I mean, who's making the call? And then that's when the bishop seems not to be too worried about that. <laughs> right. Yes. Because the bishop is playing a different game. He doesn't, I mean, he might, he probably cares about war with France, but he's, we know exactly what he's trying to get, which is money and power in the hands. He wants to consult, keep the money can power consolidated in the hands of the church. Uh, and so in order to do that, in some ways, what he's saying is go off to war, right? We'll give you money to go fight your war, and then we can keep everything here. And you, but you even see that in like one of the lords, was it Westmoreland, who's like, just yeah. go on and, you know, you, some of us will go, some of us will stay. Like there's this sense of division that's going to happen in the kingdom, which is, you know, never divide your kingdom, right? Yes. Um, which those are the king's brothers, Westmoreland. It's Humphrey and right. Westmoreland. Those are the king's younger brothers. So why would it? Again, we have all of this is like an episode of House of Cards. It's fascinating if you understand. It's a family drama. Yes. It really, in a lot of ways, it is. Uh, a lot of the history plays are this, you know, these 
they just seem like bald statements put on paper, but if you see it performed, you can see the looks in people's eyes, the way that they move their bodies, the way they position themselves. You can see there is so much happening underneath the surface, all of this subtext, right? All these things are happening. These motivations are crisscrossing just like they do in real live politics, right? That, that, is a main concern of the play. Of course, Westmoreland would like his older brother to go off and fight a war like Richard, the, like, like Richard the Lionheart and be gone for his entire reign being real popular. But then guess who gets to run the country? Who has yeah. the real power in this case? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, um, I'm fascinated by the comparison to the black prince, mm. uh, which um, was, he said it was his great uncle. Is that right? Henry's great uncle. That I sounds right. Was, what they say. Now who knows what they actually, I, I might have to do some looking into what, if, whether he actually was the great uncle, because sometimes they use those words in different ways, those, those yeah. familial terms in different ways than we did. But that, you know, and when I said it's a family drama, I mean, I was joking, but it kind of is, right? Because uh-huh. the the specter of his family is sort of always haunting him. Um, both his father's actions, as, and then there even the sort of courage of his uncle, who and his uncle was truly, an, you know, one of the great English heroes. Of, there's like the Black Prince and St. George, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, maybe King Arthur, throw King Arthur in there if you want to. But um, as far as being the ultimate sort of warrior, who who is more... Um, who was more a, a English legend, yeah. Yeah, like a true figure, like a really living figure, you know, Edward the Black Prince and, and King Arthur has got to be it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, even that is hovering over him. And there's this question of, so was it, was I just, am I not, not only am I, was I, am, am I just to attack France, but is the kingdom that I'm ruling now mine justly? And then there's the question of, what does it mean to be a king, to be a leader? And mm-hmm. can I live up to the actions of Edward the Black Prince, let alone the actions of of my father? Um, and it seems like he's sort of he's thinking about that, even in the way he responds to the to the um, to the to the French messenger. Um, mm-hmm. Where I, I marked a spot here where it seems like he's that's something that really matters to him. See if I can find it. I can't find it. Why don't you talk for a second while? <laughs> um. Yeah, you're, you're, what you're bringing up is huge with Henry V. This is why, I, like I said, you can read these plays, you can read all of the Henry plays with as standalone plays, but there's something about having read Henry the fourth parts one and two, particularly part one, when you see him as Prince Hal is this young man living the wildlife in the East champ tavern in London with Falstaff getting Mm -hmm. drunk and thieving and being wild. And yet, in his soliloquies, which you have nothing like that in Henry V. That is interesting. You have absolutely, we have one very minor look into the, into the actual inner life of Henry V yeah. in this play. Is that, that's act four, I think, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, the question of, of what makes a man and what makes a king and when is the king 
the man and when is like this, there's so much pathos in this question of kingship in Shakespeare as he explores it in all these different contexts, the wild Prince Hal, who's just, who can't find anybody who loves him, right? His hotspur, his best friend, his cousin that he grew up with is now contending with him for the throne. His father is constantly just berating him for his wild ways, um, Falstaff and his friends, you can't really tell. I mean, you kind of figure out that Falstaff does truly love the prince, but it's still a bit ambiguous. And that, and, and Henry knows at some point, this man, this, this fat knight, I, he can't help me anymore. And I'm going to have to become the king and leave him behind. So he's just haunted all the time from the, what is the dichotomy between his humanity and his kingship and how those two things interweave together is the question of Shakespeare's history plays. Mm. And here in Henry V, you see that in this scene that you are talking about with the, with the messengers from France. Did you find that? Yeah, so I, I did. And so I, I want to kind of keep going with what you're saying though, because yeah. There's even this, he's even asking like, what is history going to make of me? Mm -hmm. He says in um, 1, 2, um, 231, either our history shall with full mouth speak freely of our acts or else our grave like Turkish mute shall have a tongueless mouth, not worshiped with a wax and epitaph. That's the <laughs> last thing he says before the messengers come in. Yeah. And he says, now we are well prepared to know the pleasure of our fair cousin. And you know, this is all before, this is all he, right before this, he says, we we're resolved. We have decided what we're going to do, bring the messenger in. And then he starts talking about history. What is history going to think of us? Which of course comes back again later, yes. but not, not only throughout the whole play, but especially in the Agincourt speech, which is mm -hmm. you know, one of the great pieces of poetry Shakespeare ever wrote. But then the ambassador says to him, um, may it please us, you know, we're going to speak now. And he says, we're no tyrant. We're a Christian king, <laughs> unto whose grace our passion is as subject as as is our wretches fettered in our prisons. Therefore, speak on. But we are no tyrant. You know. In other words, yeah. Speak freely. I'm not going to. You know. He calls himself a Christian king. He does. Um, and he's so he's certainly trying to draw attention to himself. He's trying to name what he wants to be. Right. Yes. But I think that also speaks is speaking to back to his father. Mm -hmm. who, as you said, was a usurper and who usurped the throne under very specific circumstances and with a certain sort of kingdom in mind, I, I think. Mm -hmm. And so he's trying to sort of, in some ways, both fulfill and um, both fulfill his father's mission while also escaping the specter of it. Yes. And well, I think and you I, see that in yeah. that one line right there. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. And we see it, I think, in the names of the plays. So... To your point, Henry the Fourth, Part One, and Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Henry the Fourth actually has very, very minor roles in both of those plays. The main role in both of those is is Prince Hal. Mm. So the idea of succession mm -hmm. is absolutely paramount in these plays. That question of who am I going to be in light of my father? What kind of a man am I? What kind of a king am I? How do I hold on to the throne that my father stole? 
Mm-hmm. Even if you acknowledge that Henry the Fourth had the rightful claim, which is hotly debated in histor- in the historical record, and yeah. at the time was tenuous, very tenuous. Nobody liked Richard II. Everyone wanted him gone. But the question was, is this a trumped up charge? Yeah. It, are we putting Henry the Fourth on the throne and murdering the king in the Tower of London as or the former king in the Tower of London, are these, is this the righteous, can we in right and conscience make this claim? Yeah. Is the question, you know, he, he says, in other words, almost, what is yes. just, what is yes. just is the question, what he's saying there is, is this just for me to do? Yes, yes. But your, that line that you just read, and I'm going to read it again. We are no tyrant, but a Christian king under whose grace our passion is as subject as all, as are our wretches, fettered in our prisons. Don't miss that line. Listeners, this is why when I said earlier, I see what I want to see in Henry, right? (laughs) This line right here is to me just stands out like a sore thumb. What he's, he's comparing that that line under whose grace our passion is as subject as are our wretches fettered in our prison. He's comparing his own desires to prisoners and criminals. Mm-hmm. everything I want, I have to lock away in order to be the king. That's what it takes to be the king. And I accept that. That's what, that's what he's saying. I accept that. So go ahead and, and talk to me. Give me the message from your fair cousin. Yeah. Be frank, be direct. Yep. Yes. But my heart goes out to that. I'm a huge fan of Henry V, but I will try to be as unbiased as I can in presenting him because you can read him multiple ways. But those are the lines like that that Shakespeare throws in that just show the humanity that has to be put in subject, like a prisoner to his mm-hmm. role as king. Well, and I think that you can read that. You, I think the fact that you can read that so many ways is just mm-hmm. testament to Shakespeare's genius because you can read it positively as you're saying there. And then part of me says... It's him kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll try to take the negative tack. You can be the fan yeah. and I'll just, for the sake of discussion, I'll take the, I'll take the lesser, I'll be less in favor of him. Just perfect. I don't know that I totally feel that way, but. Um, we have to, I mean, you have to, and to read these history plays, you have to play devil's advocate. You take one side, I'll take the other. It's the only way to read them to be fair to the text. <laughs> and I'm not, <laughs> like I said, I, I'm not sure how I feel about him. Every time I sure. read it, I feel something different. And, but, but it feels a little bit. I think you could read this as if he's kind of showing off mm-hmm. or, or maybe he's trying to convince himself. Maybe, maybe he, you know, he's in that position where he is the real test of his power, of his capacity to lead, um, of his ability to represent his nation and his people is being put to a test. And he's saying to this messenger, you know, he's, he's making a stand uh, t- sort of, it's in some ways maybe aspirational, but in some ways, it also feels all sort of ostentatious. And you wonder at first what the messenger would, would have been thinking. And so he, the messenger gives his little speech, uh, which the French prince sort of sends along. And, you know, he sends him the, he sends him the tennis balls, of course. Right. Well, and the point you're making is really, really valid and very important as you're reading these plays. Uh, this idea of the point, the counterpoint, right? I make a point, you make a counterpoint. You can always do that in the history plays. You can always say, well, have you thought about this way? And almost all the time it will work. And 
and this particular, the, the question that you brought up about in, about Angelina's points about masks, are Henry's words, are they revealing of him or are they masks to the true him? Yeah. Words is, words are what we have from well, Henry plays. So that, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So that's a big question when he's talking, is he telling the truth or is it just theater? Is it ceremony? He talks about that a lot in all the plays and this play in particular, what does it take to be a King? It's just ceremony. And, but if it's just, and if it's ceremony, if it's just a mask, the things that he says, is that actually wrong? Right. Like is maybe that's the way a King has to be. Like maybe mm-hmm. that is what Kingship is to put the right, to put a mask on in defense of your people in some right. way. And sometimes that means, you know, the question, the question always then is, is what does it mean to defend your people or to be, to be representative of your people? But sometimes right. you have to do the thing that is not who you truly are. Um, which goes back to all the discussion about who he was when he was younger. Yeah. And it brings us full circle then. Is there any way to see the real Henry? Is there any way to know who he is? Or, you know, the most famous line, well, there's several really, really famous lines um, from this play, but one of them is the claim that Henry is the mirror of all Christian kings. And we'll get there and we'll talk then when we get there about mirrors and what mirrors do, which is they reflect the observer. Right. So Mm -hmm. when you look at Henry, what do you see? Do you see the human or do you see the king? Is there a way that anybody can see both, even himself? Yeah. And, and, well, yeah, let's, we can, we're talking about that a lot. That idea of looking at the mirror of the Christian king and what it reflects. I mean, what is the person even who's reading the play? seeing in the mirror. Right. But in these lines that we're just talking about, about the passion as, as the prisoners, that isn't really, you're right. Could it just be ceremony? Could it be him? Oh, I have to say something here that makes me look humble, but also establishes my power, lets them know that I'm humble, but I'm also always in control. So is this another form of ceremony or is this a glimpse into kind of the inner torment of being a king or is it both? Hmm. Well, so in 274, he, he, this is the part that I was looking for actually, um, that had marked. And I wrote in my margin, the question, what makes a king a king? And he says, I will, he says to the messenger, I will keep my state, hmm. be like a king and show my sale of greatness when I do rouse me in my throne of France. So he's saying, he's basically already saying when this is over, this is what I'm going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says flat out, I'm going to be like a king. I, I will keep my state, be like a king. For that I have laid by my majesty and plotted like a man for working days, but I will rise there with so full of glory that I will dazzle all the eyes of France. And he's speaking very boldly to yes. a kingdom that is much more powerful than him. <laughs> yes. His, and tell the pleasant, and then he says, and tell the pleasant prince, this mock of his hath turned his, his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them. So he says, basically saying, tell him this is his fault. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, um, it's like in Tombstone. <laughs> you ever seen that movie? Yes. Yes. So he's like, Wyatt Earp's basically saying, you tell him, we're coming and you tell him hell's coming with us. He's saying, this is their fault and we're coming and you better warn him that we're on the way. Right. Um, it's exactly. And, when, and it's Odysseus and when, shouting back to yeah, Fallen yeah, Polyphemus exactly. too. Yeah. Tell him it's Odysseus, son of Laertes. It's that moment of like, this is me. And this I'm is the first sort of big speech. Mm-hmm. Like the big sort of Henry taking charge speech. 
Um, and, and it, in these taking charge speeches is where I wonder the most, are these the masks or is it the most like a mask or the most like himself? That's mm-hmm. the thing. If he's always either sort of in between one of those two things, these speeches either have to be the most like a mask or the most like himself. It's got to be one or the other. And, right. and that, I don't think the, the speeches sort of live in the middle area there. Mm-hmm. I don't think they could. Yeah, maybe you're right about that. And it's, I mean, if for for the readers who are, for the listeners and the, the readers of the play who are wanting the context of this speech that um, the ambassadors from France come in and get and offer him tennis balls, which is the way of the French King saying, I've heard about your wild youth. You're not cut out for war. Why don't you just stay and play some pleasant games in the fields? Right. So that that's, it's an insult. It's a bit of a middle finger to Henry. So you know, makes me wonder why the king did it though. Why did the Dauphin do it? Is he as eager for war as Henry? Because it's such an insult. How could Henry, you know, it's a line in the sand. Yeah. He, ha- he, he, if he, he's, it would be a week to do nothing now. Right. Yes. Now he doesn't in, just. In cahoots with the bishop. Exactly. Now Henry doesn't just have the Archbishop of Canterbury's like weird long speech about Salic law and the female <laughs> line and all this stuff. He actually has. An, an insult from the Dauphin of France that he has to respond to or else be seen as weak. So to your point, there's, again, there's just a lot of political intrigue that you don't see if you're just kind of baldly reading it on paper. The one thing we can say is that Henry has a way with words though. He does indeed. He's just, <laughs> he just like rises to this occasion, doesn't he? Of course. It's- so so does, so does Exeter. This was a merry. This was a merry message. Is a great, <laughs> a great line in the play. Actually, he's, a man of, he's he's a little understated, but you know, you, every great man of words has to have an understated best friend to hang around with. Right, it's so true. Yes, <laughs> Horatio. They never exactly, exactly. all too. But this is one of um, the great speeches for an actor. If you're mm-hmm. a Shakespearean actor, you want to play Henry V. How do you play this speech? How would you play this speech, David? What kind of, what tone would you have if you were acting this speech? Oh man, I mean it, that depends a lot on what you want to do with the production. I mean, I I, th- I could easily see this where you play it. I could see you playing it very cool, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of icy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you could also play it where he's just mocking the French and he's mocking the messenger and he's like he's just sort of like this is just silly. And then you play it very aggressively. He could be stomping around the stage. He could be kind of getting in the face of the of the messenger. He could take the balls, the tennis balls and like throw them back at the at the guy. And that these those kind of questions are really fascinating and um and I think that there is a I think the degree to which you allow as a performer or a director or whatever, the degree to which you allow Henry to be uh very physical on the stage We'll, yes. we'll say a lot about how an audience uh, feels about your interpretation or how your audience get, understands your interpretation of the character and of the play. Because you could have him be very stoic and sort of not really moving on the stage. And I think you could still pull it off really well. Or you could have him be sort of a larger than life physical character. Um, and I think that you could, I think either one of those could work really well, but you're going to have to you then would have to be consistent throughout in terms of how you're interpreting him. I, I kind of am fascinated by both of those. Like I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by like, what if you had a Henry who was kind of a small guy? Huh? Who's like, he's the King because he inherited it from his father who usurped the throne. Um, and he like in, and maybe one of the reasons that he was sort of 
wild in his youth is because he didn't understand his place in it, right? Like, how do you, how do you, how can you get across the sense that he doesn't totally know what to do as the prince, um, and uh-huh. and with the prospect of being king looming, and you, you try to physically manifest that. So you could have him could be kind of a small guy, or he could be short, or speak sort of. I mean, I guess you can't speak softly per se on stage, but you know what I'm saying. He could maybe not have like he could be sort of a non-traditional right or you could play him in a sort of very uh he's very handsome and you know takes who do you think has played him best in the film versions that you've seen i probably brenna uh is probably my favorite because i think brenna um manages to well i mean Lawrence olivia is pretty good um but I think Branagh kind of gets at the sort of. I think it was Olivier's. Is the mm-hmm. one that I was thinking. Yeah. I think Branagh kind of at that time in his life was able to sort of get across this sort of youthfulness that he kind of has to grow out of as the play goes on. So I kind of and I and I like I like that Branagh is very formal in the way that he sort of formal but aggressive in the way that he says the lines. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever really seen anybody interpret him as sort of uh, sort of small. Right. Figure. But he's the king, so people have to listen to him. They're always going to be testing him. And mm-hmm. I think you could read that. You could make that first bit with the bishop say, you, you, it, could, it could make sense that they're trying to use him if you want to interpret it that way. So yes. I'd be fascinated with a production that did that. And then he has to kind of sort of transcend that. And he said he somehow gets people to follow him despite the limitations of it, which I think would be, I think that's an interesting, an inter, could be an interesting take on it. What about you? Oh, Tom Hiddleston, hands down. I think he's fantastic. I, I, so I haven't, I haven't seen that. Yeah. So he's wonderful. I think he's the best. Um, I think Branagh's really good, but Branagh's a little bit too, um, like his, this isn't his fault. Like he's, he's so noble. <laughs> like there's he's not quite human what an insult i know that i know he's not he's not quite human enough to get to the like hiddleston has like a little bit of like a tormented brad pitt kind of vibe as henry v um and he's but he's like very handsome and classical looking and, and but he plays him like steely-eyed tight-lipped um I, I love him as Henry that. I, haven't, I haven't watched that one. That's I'm looking it up. That's a 2012 version. Yeah, it's the hollow crown. And the whole it does the whole if you start with Richard II and go all the way through, it'll blow your mind. It's fantastic. But because by the time then you get to Wait, Henry V. He, oh yeah. So he he does play all of them, doesn't he? Yeah, he plays Prince Hal. And the Falstaff's pretty good too. But we'll 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 talk about all that, I'm sure, another time. But the he, Ooh, John he Hurt. Yeah, it's good. It's so good. All of our listeners watch the Tom Hiddleston version. I, I think Branagh too. And I've actually never seen Olivier, so I can't speak to that one. Is this so, is this Hiddleston one? See, I should have watched this one before we, uh, I, didn't even, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even forgot about that one entirely. Um, is that streaming anywhere, I wonder? I had to buy it, I think. We have to I buy think, things in this I know, world, right? So. I know. Yeah, with money. It's weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> Nasty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Eh. But I am sure that I didn't have to. Maybe, I just, maybe it's it, on BBC or something. Yeah. 
maybe. Um, but yeah, it's great. And this, this particular speech is, I mean, just the way he, I, I love the way he plays it to your point uh, with just this restraint, right? But there's something about this speech that feels like it, you, it's, it's Shakespeare, right? He's just such a genius. Like you read it and it, it has, the words are fiery, but that you know, like even in reading it, you know that there's this, this sense of restraint and this theatrical quality to it too. He's making a public point. He's not losing his temper. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, cause, and then even at the end, he says, convey them with safe conduct. Mm-hmm. Fare you well. You know, there's a sort of, he do, it's not really like bombastic or even, he doesn't like fly off the handle, so to speak. Right. Exactly. Yes. You, Although his words sound to, fiery. Yeah, yeah. Like his words sound like, you know, you tell him this and, but even in the way Shakespeare wrote it, there's this strategic restraint to it as well. Mm. Yeah, I think we begin to see Henry the strategist mm-hmm. emerge here um, in a way that seems likely to have been sort of for the first time uh, based on what the, the bishops were saying. Right. So is it the bishops who are actually being played the whole time? This has always been my question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we even see it like when he's talking about, well, what are we going to do with the Scots? He's asking all the right questions of his people, right. of his sort of advisors. Right. He kind of leads them in order, I think, to get... And it always makes me think always of Princess Bride and how much Prince Humperdinck wants to start a war. <laughs> so, um, <Yeah>. Which is <laughs> smart. I mean, that's what he's thinking is. Starting there's a been war? So much, yes, there's a very smart thing to do for, for Henry to do. Because what's happened, there's been so much internal unrest in England, so much question about who should be on the throne. And, and Henry and Prince Hal had a bad reputation you if you need if if no one likes you give them a reason to rally around you exactly and get it out of the country right like the same thing you do when you're in your house and everyone's bickering and you're like pack the kids up we're going ice skating right like this get them out we got to get out of here and go do something do something where we can all laugh at each other yes we're going to a movie we're going to the park it's that like there's so much unrest happening within the nation what henry is doing is saying like i Let's let's get the focus onto foreign affairs and away from whether or not I should be on this throne. Mm-hmm. The question is not that. The question is not whether is whether or not I should have this throne in France. So stop talking about this throne. Yeah, exactly. So, and, <laughs> and, and and of course that makes it like for all the English people, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. If you would have told us we could have France too, right. we'd have been fine with it a long time ago. <laughs> yes. All you had to do is say that. We'd have been, we'd have just been let's. We'd have gone right along with it. Uh, as you say, oh, yeah, that, so, and that again, that calls into question the nature of patriotism. Yes. Because, is patriotism really about justice or is it just about feeling good about yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Yep. Which takes us back to the chorus, right? Full circle. So we had all these like lofty language about England and the and how great it is and yeah, yeah, how yeah. we're going to see this amazing king who everyone's rallying around. And, oh, actually, there's just all this scheming and political intrigue, but (laughs) everyone's looking at the king. Who is the king? Is he good? Is he, what is he mirroring? Is he mirroring this nation? Is he mirroring his own humanity? Is he mirroring what we want to see? Do we want him to be strong? Do we want him to be subversive? That's all the focus kind of goes on to the king. 
You know, I, I wonder what Shakespeare at the time, Shakespeare probably could have, they could have only performed it in a way that was somewhat flattering to the monarch. So it's, it's interesting that, yes, you know, monarchs aren't generally in favor of, you know, popular culture, so to speak. Right. Mocking them. So, <laughs> not really something that they, that they let go. So they probably would have had to perform it in a way that was very patriotic, that was sort of, you know, in a way sort of pointing towards the sort of grandeur and virtue of the queen. But over time, you know, that, again, it's the genius of Shakespeare, right? Over time, it, these things take on um, a sort of life of their own. Um, or or they be, or you come to realize that they're more than what the surface shows or whatever interpretation shows. And so I wonder if Shakespeare at the time was thinking, one day hmm. realize that I was actually being subversive, but I'm going to die of natural causes first and so get the head chopped off. <laughs> yes, and they will all read it. Well, there's no way you could pick up on the subversive nature of this play from seeing it one time in the one penny audience, right? Yeah, unless, you, you're, unless you also yeah. are a genius. Right. It's, I mean, there's that whole thing about Richard III when Queen Elizabeth saw it and she stormed out of the theater and said, do you not know that I am Richard? But she was so angry about that play. And, but this one, she loved, she loved this play. So because- Which was written first? Uh, oh, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm really sad about that. Like, I wonder if uh, she was mad about Richard and so then... He wrote her in this one, yeah. something like that as a sort of peace offering. Right. But if you just listen to the choruses, let's say you're just in the audience, right? You listen to the choruses and you're like, this is a yay England play. Yeah. So... (laughs) A yay England play. Yeah. (laughs) It's a technical term. (laughs) (laughs) Is that uh, hyphenated? Like... Is it no, yay it's cap- England it's or it's all caps? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. um, we should like create a hashtag for the discussion of this play. <laughs> yay, England. Um, well, we should wrap it up. So uh, give me a chance to offer any final thoughts as we conclude our conversation of Act 1 and then get ready for Act 2 next week. Well, as we head into Act 2, the, the play, we're about to encounter... Uh, the low plot here. Um, so the, the characters who are not at the same social position as the others, we're about to find out what's happened to some beloved characters from the earlier plays. And so for those, for those listeners who haven't read some of those earlier plays, it might be worth Googling them in order to kind of understand as we encounter in act two, Falstaff and some of these these characters that are from earlier plays, just kind of get, get a feel for them in order to put the, these scenes in context. Yeah. I think that some of the movie productions also help with that too. Like at the Branagh one does flashbacks, I think behind some of the, uh, the, the dialogue is that, is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So I, you know, it helps sort of helps you kind of visualize what you're, what you're reading in some of those scenes. If you're, if you're a little lost. Um, well, Heidi, thank you. Oh yeah. Good this fun. is so much fun. Are you kidding? This is going to be the best. I'm glad it's just the two of us. <laughs> we get to talk like more. Devil's advocate with each other. It'll be fun. <laughs> I'll argue and de- you can argue in defense of Henry and I'll, uh, I'll argue that he was a, a power hungry, uh, Julius Caesar like character. It's just like being in college. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, thanks to everyone who has been listening. Don't forget that you can join the conversation over on the Facebook group. And don't forget about that new uh, Instagram page. If you head over to Instagram and just search uh, Close Reads Podcast, we're posting... Uh, you know, We're kind of figuring exactly how to use it. We're doing a giveaway. Uh, we'll be giving away... Um, first a copy of the Everyman's collection of Christmas poems. Then we're going to be next week, we're going to be giving away a copy of um, Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, which is excellent. Uh, so we're going to do some giveaways. We'll be posting things we're talking about in the books and, you know, other things and kind of play around with that and see how it, see how uh, people like it. So follow us over there. If you are on Instagram, um, you can always follow on Twitter. And we also have a Twitter page for the daily poem. So don't forget about that. Uh, subscribe to as many of these shows as you want to. That helps us out a lot. Leave reviews, start reviews, comment reviews. That helps us spread the word. And of course, if you are so inclined, you can support the show over on Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash close reads. And that helps uh, all of these shows on the network um, happen. And then finally, we are launching... Um, Next week, most likely, we're launching a new podcast called Libromania in which I talk to people about all the stuff that makes books awesome. It's kind of a book nerd podcast. The first episode is going to be a conversation with John Wilson, who's the former editor of Books and Culture. And we're talking about the best books of 2018. In, uh, episodes coming up include a conversation about why, like scientifically, why do books... Why do we love the smell of old books? There's a conversation about um, the book that was just recently... Uh, nominated or voted by the American re American readers as the favorite book by American readers, the favorite American book, I guess. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, book design, book layout, book covers, book collecting, book stores, all the things that book nerds love. Uh, bookish people love is probably the nicer way of saying it. So uh, make sure you're on the lookout for that and make sure you subscribe. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, there's lots of great content coming. Uh, our movie podcast will be launching in early 2019, but probably early 2023. And um, so, so be on the lookout for that as well. Um, let's see, what else do we have to talk about? I think that's it. I think that's all. So Yes, but I do want to say Henry V was written in 1599 and Richard III in 1593. So your theory could be very much borne out. I'm going to go with that. Yep. That's my final thought that, mm -hmm. that, that maybe he made it as a, I'm going to hedge it. Maybe he made it <laughs> as a response for her distaste. He, maybe he felt like he wanted to keep his head and die of natural causes. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, that's it. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to Heidi White for joining me and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network and the Cersei Institute. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 